The creation of the Office of the President of the United States has been critical to the success of our democracy. The founders compromised in between those that called for a strong executive and others that believed a weaker leader would be more beneficial to the nation. Our experience under King George III and the failed Articles of Confederation were central to the debate. What came out of this debate was a managerial president with expanded powers as compared to the Articles, but with substantial limitations both in the lack of enumerated constitutional powers and the ability of the other two branches to check his power. This essay will address the reality of expanded presidential power throughout our history. It will put forward the idea that five groups, the Congress, the Supreme Court, presidents themselves, presidential scholars, and the public are to blame. In addition, it will explain why presidential power expansion is a problem and speculate about the possibility of solving this potential democratic crisis. The debate over the construction of a new executive branch was critical to the success of the Constitutional Convention in 1787. The Founding Fathers intended for the office to be limited in power, but stronger than the weak and ineffective executive branch the country experienced under the Articles of Confederation from 1781 to 1789. The enumerated powers of the President in the Constitution include Commander-in-Chief, signing into law or vetoing congressional bills, Chief Executive, the ability to pardon, appoint ambassadors, executive and judicial branch positions in the federal government, negotiating treaties, and updating the country through the State of the Union. In addition to limiting the powers of the President, the authors of the Constitution put in place checks that the judicial and legislative branches could use to prevent executive overreach. One example is the Senate's duty to ratify all treaties with a two-thirds vote, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. Political scientists argue that the office of the presidency created under our new constitution was a series of compromises. And this was certainly true as it pertained to this new office. The founders feared the strong executive power as experienced under King George III, but they also knew that the weak executive power in the Articles of Confederation created serious problems for our fledgling nation. The hope was that the new executive would be a modest but effective managerial position. One key in creating this new position was the certainty that George Washington would become our first president of the United States. He had proven through his actions that he did not covet power. In a famous story, King George asked his American painter, Benjamin West, what Washington would do after the war. West replied, they say that he will return to his farm. If he does that, the doubtful monarch replied, he will be the greatest man in the world. George Washington, is the only president to be unanimously elected, and he did that two times. He respected the limited role of the executive. This was clearly demonstrated by his decision to step down in 1798 after his second term and retire to Mount Vernon. He had originally planned to leave office after his first four-year term, but decided that it would be too risky with the Federalists and Anti-Federalists within his own cabinet starting to fight over a number of issues. In his farewell address, Washington warned that, it is important, likewise, that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with its administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon another. Unfortunately, his admonition about government leaders remaining within the constitutional bounds of their respective offices would go largely unfollowed. Despite the Founders' best efforts and Washington's excellent example, the power of the President of the United States has grown immensely. In his seminal work, The Imperial Presidency, 1973, Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. 
wrote that the American presidency has become the most imposing political position in all of the world. Schlesinger and others advocate Adv Schlesinger and other advocates of this position argue that there are five primary groups to blame for presidential power expansion. The first group of culprits are the presidents themselves. Lord Acton keenly noted that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Presidents have been extremely susceptible to the temptation of going outside the parameters of the Constitution. There are two primary reasons for this. Firstly, presidents have felt the need due to crisis situations that the nation has faced over the years. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and instituted martial law because he felt it was critical to the war effort. More recently, President George W. Bush expanded his powers by interning U.S. citizens and foreign nationals without charge, trial, or access to an attorney. By sanctioning enhanced interrogation techniques in order to extract information from prisoners of war, and utilizing the National Security Agency and other intelligence agencies to spy on a host of targets, including American citizens. Secondly, presidents have expanded power for their own selfish reasons. President Richard Nixon is an infamous example of this type of executive usurpation. During his presidency, Nixon kept an enemies list and targeted groups and individuals that threatened his power. In what would become known as Watergate, Nixon authorized operatives to break into the Democratic campaign headquarters at a prominent hotel in Washington, D.C. The investigation that followed by members of the press and Congress unraveled the whole series of unethical and criminal behavior by, the, by Nixon. Ultimately, this would lead to his resignation as articles of impeachment were formally drafted and put before the House of Representatives. The second group responsible for the growth of presidential power is Congress. This is best illustrated in the area of war making. The Constitution clearly gives the declaration of war power to Congress as a whole in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11. The founders knew that throughout history, executives had taken their countries to war for all kinds of frivolous reasons. In this new democratic experiment, they, they wanted to ensure that the people, not the leader, would make this ultimate decision. Further proof of this goal is the congressional power of granting letters of mark and reprisal. In the beginning of our nation's history of shipping lanes, or in our, in our um, history of um, our country, the, the shipping lanes that we had across the world were often targeted by Barbary pirates, especially off the, the coast of northern Africa. In the Second Barbary War, James Madison granted a letter of marque to the Grand Turk, a vessel out of Salem, Massachusetts. It was authorized to engage any private or public ship that caused trouble. The authors of the Constitution not only wanted Congress to declare full-scale war, but also limited military engagements. They wanted to keep the executive out of this area. This functioned fairly well for the first 150 years of our nation's history. The War of 1812, the Mexican-American War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, and World War II were all constitutionally approved by the United States Congress. They were certainly, there were certainly some notable exceptions. Andrew Jackson's use of troops to relocate Seminole Indian tribes uh, in Florida was an unilateral action. In addition, the Civil War did not d receive a, a declaration of war. The Korean War was the first major international war that did not receive congressional approval. In the last 76 years, the Congress has essentially followed the president to engage in military engagements without authorization. In 1973, Congress passed what is known as the War Powers Resolution, in an attempt to rein in presidential military power after the Vietnam War. It allowed the presidents to commit troops for 60 days and a potential 30-day extension without congressional permission. 
Under the act, presidents were supposed to notify Congress within 48 hours. The idea behind the War Powers Resolution was that it would give the ability to Congress to force the return of troops in an unauthorized war because the chief executive had not received approval via a formal act in the legislature. Instead of remedying the situation, the controversial resolution has made it much easier for presidents to send troops abroad. Once the president has the military in country, it is nearly impossible for Congress to force them to come home. This is largely due to the fact that they only, the only real way to do this is to defund the military effort. Individual legislators are hesitant to call for this because they want to win re-election. Presidents have submitted roughly 130 reports to Congress under the resolution. However, this is essentially the only part of that, of that executives have followed over the years. It can be somewhat confusing as to why Congress would abdicate its declaration of war duty under the Constitution, but the simplest reason is for political expediency. If Congress is not responsible for the decision to go to war, then they cannot be held accountable come election time. Moreover, they can still support the troops by continuing funding efforts um, and, and, use, and use unpopular wars as leverage in their re-election bids. The third contributor to presidential power growth is the Supreme Court of the United States. As with Congress, the court is charged with checking the power of the executive. It has largely failed in this critical aspect of the job description. In Paradoxes of the American Presidency, 2010, Cronin and Genovese assert that the Supreme Court fails to adequately check presidential power expansion in the majority of cases it hears on the subject. They, come, they came up with five types of presidential, of presidential Supreme Court cases. They called them expanding, legitimizing, avoiding, two-sided, and restricting. Two-sided cases are rare. In these types of cases, the rule of law goes against the president, but the power is added to the institution through the opinion of the court. For example, in U.S. v. Nixon 1974, President Nixon was forced to turn over the White House tapes, but at the same time the court recognized executive privilege as a legitimate presidential power. Most of the time, courts expand presidential power. These are decisions that, that add to the power of the executive branch. In U.S. v. Curtis Wright Export Corp. 1936, the court recognized that the president needs to have more power in foreign affairs rather than in domestic. The Supreme Court also legitimized, legitimizes presidential power in many of the cases it hears. These cases approve presidential actions that were questioned at the time. In the regrettable case of Korematsu versus the United States in 1944, the court approved FDR's internment of Japanese-American citizens during World War II. Avoiding and restricting cases are rare. In avoiding cases, the court simply chooses not to decide. The doctrine of not hearing political questions is usually cited as a reason the court refuses to hear cases on executive power. A good example of this type of case is Massachusetts versus Laird, 1970. In this case, a military family questioned the president's power to wage the Vietnam War without congressional authorization. They were hopeful that the president's actions would be ruled unconstitutional, but the court refused to hear the case. Restricting cases are also extremely rare. Restricting cases limit or diminish presidential power. In the steel seizure case of 1952, President Truman's takeover of Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company in order to prevent a strike was ruled unconstitutional. One of the most prevalent arguments as to why the court sides with the quest for growth in the presidency is that the justices feel loyal to the president that appointed them and also to the executive branch as an institution. This theory states that the president is popularly elected and the court should often defer to his decision-making. 
In addition, presidents will appoint justices that they perceive to be supportive of their foreign policy agenda. The fourth responsible party for presidential power growth is academia. The vast majority of presidential scholars have called for constitutionally responsible presidents, but a select few have argued for increased power. The argument goes all the way back to the Constitutional Convention. Alexander Hamilton was a strong proponent of executive power and felt that the enumerated powers of the president were too few. Perhaps the best-known scholar arguing for strong presidential power was Richard Neustadt. In his classic Presidential Power in the Modern Presidents, The Politics of Leadership, 1960, he proposed that in order to be effective and solve crisis, crises, presidents had to come up um, with the following guidelines in their office. They should have a will for power. They should exploit the crisis situation to gain attention and power. They should win over others to support their agenda, particularly Congress and the public. He should be determined. He should determine his own power. Do not let others decide for him. He should use popularity and prestige to enhance his power. And he should be wise in the use of presidential power because it is not easy to come by. Neustadt made this argument because he saw many examples of powerful presidents solving the country's problems, particularly Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who he used as his power um, example of, of strong power to get out of the Great Depression and win World War II. The fifth group that is to blame presidential power expansion is the public. The warnings about this phenomenon are not coming from the citizenry, but rather from the public and, and scholars. Americans are busier than ever, and they have many things to worry about in their everyday lives. In addition, Americans have seen themselves or studied in history presidents that have solved problems or expanded liberties using their power. It took the courage of President Theodore Roosevelt to go after abusive monopolies. It was Abraham Lincoln that led the charge in ending slavery for millions of African-American slaves. And another explanation is that Americans tend to pay more attention to domestic affairs rather than foreign affairs. Poll after poll conclude that Americans care most about these domestic issues, particularly the economy. The prospect for reform in this area is not good. As demonstrated in this essay, the Congress, the Supreme Court, the presidency, scholars, and the public have contributed greatly to this problem, and there does not seem to be any momentum for change. It is true that some of our biggest violators of the Constitution are also our top presidents. Fortunately, presidents like Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, and FDR did much of what they did in order to help the nation and disadvantaged groups. Nevertheless, Americans should be concerned because our nation is a democracy after, after all, and the citizenry through the elected representatives should take the lead on making important decisions that impact everyone. The problem worsens when we envision a future president like Nixon that might put the nation at risk and potentially curb civil liberties. Mm-hmm.